Battle Bond previews, and the return of the SCG Power 9 on episode 79 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 79 of So Many Insane Plays, our Battle Bond and SCG Con Power 9 tournament preview, where we'll be discussing the evolving and expected vintage metagame. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi, everyone. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, you can tweet us at Many Insane Plays, email us at So Many Insane Plays Podcast at gmail.com, or leave feedback on Eternal Central, MTGCast, or TheManadrain.com. Well, Steve, we normally start our show with announcements, but since this is a preview show, we want to get right into the heart of the matter. What do you say? Let's do it. So thank you to Wizards of the Coast for sending us these Battle Bond preview cards. And yes, I said cards because we have two cards to share with you for the upcoming Battle Bond set. Now, what is Battle Bond, you might ask? I can I understand if some of our <laughs> yeah, I can understand if some of our audience might share that question with you, Steve. Given that we are primarily a vintage show, and Battle Bond is not a vintage targeted format, it is a format targeted for two-headed giant. That means the set features specially crafted team-friendly cards, which is not what we have today. It has specially chosen reprints, which is what we do have today, mm-hmm. and it's designed to be played in limited so it's designed to be drafted with a teammate i love the idea of specialty sets and i especially love this the idea of specialty sets for specialty formats can we get these for vintage (laughs) (laughs) no we've benefited commander is an example of that kind of product right where you design a product for Mm -hmm. a, a particular format and um that's that is geared in some sense for eternal formats but of course commander is i guess kind of an eternal format um two-headed giant is a fun format it's just inherently fun it's it's more fun to play it's fun to play magic uh, 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 against people but it's even more fun to play magic with people it's a format that i feel like i just don't get enough to enjoy nearly enough well i agree with your assessment completely on all fronts very fun and i would like to do it more as well i have been doing it occasionally for pre-releases lately and I expect to get as many games of this Battle Bond format in as I can at my LGS. So, without much further ado, as I said, we have two cards, and these are not new cards, although Battle Bond does have some new cards. We have reprints, though, and there's a reason that Wizards gave us these reprints in particular, because these are two very eternal-friendly cards. One of them for Vintage, and one of them for Legacy as well as overlap to EDH, as in many things. <clears throat> Where do you want to start, Steve? You want to start Legacy or Vintage? Let's start with uh, let's start with Legacy. All right. So I'm proud to introduce Veteran Explorer. For G, Creature, Human, Scout, Soldier. When Veteran Explorer dies, each player may search their library for up to two basic land cards and put them onto the battlefield. Then each player who searched their library this way shuffles it, and it's a 1-1. So those of you who follow Legacy will recognize Veteran Explorer as a staple in the Nickfit archetype. The Rock. (laughs) Yeah, old school players know as The Rock, basically. And Nickfit has actually seen some some recent success. It won the MenTGO Legacy Challenge on May 14th. So this is some timely 
exposure for veteran explorer given that nick fit is has some strong finishes of late and the key synergy in this deck as in the old rock deck is you play the veteran explorer and then you flash back cabal therapy and bam you've just often doubled your mana supply exactly that's exactly it and that's also why this card i think was chosen for battle bond and that's because not only do you do this for yourself but you're doing it for your teammate and because you can ostensibly control when the explorer dies in a, in a game of magic ostensibly um then if you do on your turn you and your teammate both get the immediate benefit of the lands because they come into play untapped right so this is an uncommon in battle bond so i have a feeling that it will be fun to kind of build around that particular synergy in the format <laughs> and people will be interested to find ways where they can sacrifice their own creatures to accelerate themselves i love it i i love this card i was talking with kevin before the show and and just saying that you know, i didn't have a lot of familiarity with this card veteran explorer and it reminds me reminded me of cards in old extended like uh sakura tribe elder elder and even before that what was the other card that i had mentioned uh yavamaya elder kevin yeah so yavamaya elder so this effect is is kind of a not just a, a high level present utility but a, a historical lineage if you will <laughs> Exactly. And now Veteran Explorer has been reprinted a few times in the Commander product in recent years, so its reprint is not necessarily uh, earth-shattering. However, it has been reprinted with its original art every time until now. This Veteran Explorer for Battlebond features new art by Steve Belladin, and it's really kind of neat. It's uh, It's got an elf sitting in a tree overlooking a, a city, and I guess it's kind of surrounded by clouds in the distance. I think I think our I think our players will really like it. But let's move on then to our Vintage reprint, another one-mana staple of certain decks, and this is Swords to Plowshares, <laughs> which really needs no introduction. I did a bit of searching beforehand just to bring up this point. Swords to Plowshares, according to MTG Goldfish, is the 50th most played spell in Vintage. <laughs> <laughs> it is the last, it's the last card on their the list, list. <laughs> of the top 50, yeah. It's pretty funny. And it's it's only down that far because Jeskai because Jeskai has, has gone back to Lightning Bolt a fair bit lately. Interesting. Yeah, Swords has had a nosedive and Jeskai's kind of had a little bit of a nosedive. But it's still one of the best white cards in the format. So yes, always absolutely. good to have more. When was the last time yep, it was reprinted before this? Well, uh, Swords to Prowlshares has seen a number of reprints, and I think that the most recent one, I'll double check, was in uh, Masters 25. And yeah, Masters 25 and Iconic Masters, so it's been reprinted a fair bit lately, in addition to last year's Commander product. So Swords to Prowlshares reprints are are nothing new, and they've become a staple of the reprint-based sets. And this one features the, now what I think has become a little bit iconic Therese Nielsen art. Oh, with yeah. The, <laughs> the soldier toting the, the, the sword across his shoulders, which I think is really great art. Yeah, I mean, nothing can re replace or displace the Jeff Mengus art on the original swords, but this art is, is definitely coming to its own. <laughs> Yeah. Interesting that they went back to having flavor text after Masters 25 removed it. Masters 25 had the original M watermark to show that this card was from Alpha. Prior to that, Iconic Masters had the version with the flavor text, and now we get the first reprinted version that has the, the bar that divides the game text from the flavor text. <laughs> so <laughs> people who are fans of, of newest and greatest... Um, F formats and templates for magic cards and frames will appreciate this upgrade i guess i know i do 
<laughs> so <laughs> so that's it for battle bond we we don't have much more information to share unfortunately there's still at, at the time of this recording a lot of details about the format that are unknown the nature of the drafting format how the packs are designed and distributed what the quirks are for the draft vis-a-vis your teammate we don't have information on all those things but we know that you can get a nice new art for veteran explorer so there it is kevin can you just refresh my recollection what's the what are the other specialty sets out there I recall recently, not recently, maybe a couple of years ago at this point, there was a really fun specialty set that was also a draft format, but it was unique in that the draft format had cards in there that messed with the draft process. I just can't. I think conspiracy is what you're right, thinking. That's of. right. That's what that was. Yep. Well, in the last yes. five to ten years, there's really been a proliferation of this of products that serve different niche purposes, hasn't there? Yes, you're definitely right. And I find myself hoping that there will be some cards in Battle Bond that do as you described and mess with the draft format or have interesting functionality when you're playing and drafting with a teammate because that's an unexplored area of magic effectively. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, so we'll see. But thanks again to Wizards for sharing these preview cards with us. We are always pleased to share these things with our audience. So let's move on then to some announcements. For announcements this episode, we want to talk about our performance in the Team VSL. Now, we're ahead of schedule for most other teams because we played our Round 2 match already before some people have even played their Round 1. So we are currently 1-1 in the league, which means we will be making an appearance in the playoffs, but we didn't go 2-0, which would have ensured us a bye until the, the semifinals. So we don't yet right. know. We have to play in the quarterfinal round. We just don't get to buy into this. Yeah, we don't yet know who will be playing or when exactly, although we can say that it will be in June at some point. But we did want to talk about our reflections on the first two rounds of the event, which have been interesting and fun and challenging and noteworthy, I think. Definitely. You know, we just as an FYI to folks who are listening. Uh, if you want to make sure that you know when we're going to play and what decks we posted, we we use our Twitter account are so many insane plays Twitter account to publicize that as much as possible. So be sure to follow us on Twitter so that we can um, share that with you and you can interact with us about that. Excellent. But Kevin, Kevin, just why don't you start by just describing um, what it's been like? What's the team vintage, uh, the team vintage super league been like for you? It's been really interesting for me personally. I have yet to chalk up a win. I've only played two matches. Oh. <laughs> I lost both of them, but they were both quite close. So I'm not feeling particularly sorry for myself at this point. But, you know, Steve, you and I take a very holistic approach to magic tournaments. That is, we relish in the preparation, everything you do before the tournament starts, deck selection, metagame analysis. And this Team Vintage Super League just ratchets that up even further. There's this whole mechanical limitation about the decks that you can even submit in the first place. And then there's all this strategic implication about what decks you choose and then what order you submit them in. I mean, it just has so many satisfying layers. And I've been personally really enjoying that. And I think that we have overall succeeded very much in those elements of the equation. And I'm really pretty proud of how we navigated the first week, for example, against the Hornet Queens with our two different. Well, actually, three different workshop decks 
And I really think that put our opponents into a bit of a bind, which was very satisfying. So aside from my personal play experience, which again is not all bad, just not successful, I have been really enjoying it. And the strategy element is just super satisfying. It occurs to me that we should just explain exactly how we've done. I mean, you've mentioned our record and who we played, but just just so to be absolutely clear about this, the first week that we battled, we battled the Horner Queens, which was Rachel Agnes, Aaron Campbell, and Athena uh, Froelich, and um, we beat them. I think we were down. We were down to our last life, so that was a yeah. seven match evening. Yep. We won four to <laughs> three. Four to three. Yep. And uh, the second team we played was snap cardster and we went did we win two matches or one i think we just won one i think it was a four to one win for them four to one win they just kind of went on a roll what happened in that match in that in that matchup was that uh well let's let's talk about that kevin so (laughs) one of the things that's interesting about the form you and i just as participants we have all sorts of unique insights into the the format and the structure and what happened and one of the things that I think has become really clear is that the deck that you put up first is a really pivotal pivotal decision. Mm-hmm. And the, the most teams have to make one of two decisions. They decide, do you put, there's really two ways to approach it. One, do you put your strongest deck up front, your best punch, so to speak, and just hope that they don't, that, that, that it probabilistically, they're not going to put up the weakest, you know, the best deck against what your best punch is. Mm-hmm. Because usually the deck that is the Achilles heel to your best punch is not the deck that is going to go up first. Or do you put up a deck that isn't necessarily your best punch, but just a general all-around deck that has kind of narrow margins across the whole field, mm-hmm. right? And we've taken the approach in both of our weeks, the latter approach. Mm-hmm. We wanted a deck, and it's really quite strategic. So in the in the second matchup we threw um we threw the two card monty deck out first in part because we didn't think that our opponents would think that we would play it first so it's a big <laughs> surprise right right <laughs> if it wins then you've just basically stolen a win and it can go on a run and also it be it allows you to draw out certain decks that from your opponent's gauntlet so that you can then match up the best matchup decks that you have on your shelf to face off their gauntlet. Yep. And so it's a little bit of a, 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 a structured game or a game within a game in a sense like that. Yeah, agree completely. I couldn't have summarized it better. The first week, though, I think we were really knocked on our backs because, um, well, we, we, we had the opportunity to ban Rachel Agnes's deck, <laughs> which we didn't just ban because we thought it was the most menacing deck, but because... She's such a strong player with that deck that we just wanted to kind of take away what I think they felt was their strongest deck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and 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 going back to the point about what deck to lead with, in that evening we led with our control stacks deck. And I think I won one match, lost the next. Yep. Then you and Jaco played, and then I came in and rattled off the next three wins. Yeah. With PO. And it's funny, Eric, in one of the recent videos or recent um, uh, episodes said that I I beat like the literal worst matchups. <laughs> Although I I actually think the literal worst matchup was the one deck they left on the shelf, yeah. which was the Merfolk deck because it had both Null Rods and Force of Wills. Um and one of the just on that point, one of the interesting things that we've encountered is that in both formats where you ban a deck, you submit six six ban one or submit five no ban, one deck is going to be on the shelf at the end of the evening mm-hmm. if you've made it 
far enough, right? If you win or or if you go long enough to play all of your decks, uh, you know, use all your lives rather, um, you will have lost. You will have one deck on the shelf. So part of the challenge is figuring out at the end of the evening, what deck do you really not want to have played? <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, well, in the, in the we haven't addressed it specifically here, but the difference between round one and round two was that round one, you submit six and your opponents ban one. Round two, you submit five and there is no ban. And the effect that right. that has is that without the ban, it effectively raises all, you know, a rising tide raises all ships. It it makes the average deck better throughout the course because you're not right. You're not removing your best deck. So, and also you don't have a sixth deck, which is ostensibly less, because of less the, flexibility yeah, because of the structure of the whole process. Your sixth deck is ostensibly going to be the least flexible one. So anyway, the result of that was, is we have, everyone has better decks for the no ban version. And even in that case, the one that's still sitting on the shelf, as you put it, is still a, probably a pretty good deck, but you've, chosen to leave it behind for matchup purposes and another thing that you didn't touch on but which we definitely have observed is that in addition to the the choice you make when you lead with a deck in this format you also need to leave at least one deck in reserve that you think can can really go the distance and beat basically anything that's another problem we've had is that we got into a situation in round two where the we had we were down three to one. We couldn't lose anymore. We had to win three rounds in a row again. And we were faced with a matchup where we really wanted one deck, Dredge, but we didn't think that Dredge could then rattle off three wins. It certainly could not beat their White Eldrazi deck with main deck Containment Priest. Precisely. There was no chance of that. <laughs> so we, we were in a situation where Dredge was the best for the matchup we were in, which was round f- you know match five of the evening. But we had to pick a deck that was worse than that matchup in order to try and win three in a row. And that's unfortunately lost that fifth matchup. So it's part of the structure of the event that when you're down, you really down and you have, you're forced to make some tough choices and there's no points for going three, two versus three or four, one or something, right? There's no points for getting almost there. So we just had to plan for winning all the rest of them and it didn't work out. It, it seemed like in some sense, the margin, I want to ask you what you think of the two different formats, which you prefer the 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 six ban one or five ban zero but it seems to me that when that especially in that second round and it's hard to know whether it's because of this the quality of the opponent or the deck selection or the circumstances but it struck me that the margins were so narrow that that you really kind of had to keep keep serve and if you fell behind you um it was like tripping and falling and you couldn't get back up Mm -hmm. because because of the way that the matchups played out that you know we decided to lead with two card monty and two card monty lost to paradoxical outcome so we brought in the just guy which beat paradoxical outcome and should then they brought oath which is a decent matchup against just guy and beat just guy at that point we needed our our paradoxical outcome deck to beat the oath deck because it's really hard to beat oath otherwise and and we couldn't bring in jaco to play dredge because he because you hadn't played yet mm-hmm. so it was so we were kind of hemmed into that, and I think you probably still have a favorable matchup, but there were some intriguing lines of play we can talk about. But I think my point I'm making is that, like, if you had won that matchup, then we're kind of, you know, we're back to even, and then it's like, we play a new set, right? Yeah. It's like, it's like a, you know, a sports playoff where, you know, the, it's a seven-game series, and the first four are split, then it's kind of like you're, you're resetting. Yeah. It's like a fresh 
but with new decks. Yeah. And that's kind of where we needed to be. We needed to have the PO deck, I think, beat the oath in order to, to win that. Yeah. Well, and you alluded to it a moment ago, but also so many of these matches were very close, right? One draw, one card here or there. We've had just a lot of close magic, and <laughs> there's just no two ways about it. The vintage is like that sometimes. You get down into a top deck war or just one mana here or there makes all the difference, and we've had a number of those games. So these have been very tight, close matches and good stuff in both rounds so far. Right. No, they really have been. It's been fascinating to see. I I really get a strong sense of the format. I mean, we're going to talk about this in a little bit, but I feel like after Eternal Weekend, things really have recalibrated a bit, and the the dynamic of like shops being so dominant, we'll see what actually happens in the tournaments as we get into the kind of tournament season, so to speak, right? right. We're already in it right. with the Waterbury and Eternal Weekend Europe, which we're going to talk about in this episode, and then SCG Con, and then onto Eternal Weekend, but you know, with workshops dominating, I really think that the Xerox deck has been more and more marginalized, which has created an opening for Paradoxical Outcome to come in and prey on the other blue deck, which is O. So you've kind of got this really interesting four-way dynamic in Vintage right now between Shops, which is really good against Xerox, but Oath is good against uh, Z- against Xerox and Shops, but weak to PO, and then PO is good against Oath and Shops. So every one of the decks has, in the, that kind of quadrant of four decks, has two good matchups, but one bad matchup. It seems like there's kind of an interesting equilibrium there. Absolutely. And the uh, there's some international issues going on, too, because as we're going to discuss, the Eternal Weekend in Europe, which just happened, had a really interesting top eight and a really interesting top 32. <laughs> and, <laughs> and and it's in, definitely in contrast to the Magic Online results for April and, and recently. So things are going to be very interesting. Our predictions for SCG Con, specifically in the Power 9 tournament there, are going to be a, f- a fun exercise. So so I want to come back to that question, Kevin. Which format do you like better? Do you like the six-deck one-ban or yeah. five-deck five no-ban? I like the six-deck one-ban just because it adds another layer of strategy. And as I said before, I am completely in for all the layers of strategy in this <laughs> format. I think it's, it's just more fun to develop more decks. It's fun to right. talk about the strategy. We didn't we didn't go down the rabbit hole of things like completely avoiding dredge, right? Because that's one of the, th- the strategies that teams have talked about on the league is, hey, right. you just remove all your dredge hate and ban their dredge deck. And we didn't go down that particular rabbit hole, but um, it, it, partly because our opponents in the first round included Aaron Campbell, of course. But I just think I just want more layers of strategy. That's just I'm all in for that and I want more of it. I agree with you entirely, <laughs> but I would just add that... Um, I think that one of the reasons it's better is not just the layer of strategy. I think the six-deck one-ban is better because if what I said earlier is right, the metagame is really a four-deck metagame plus dredge, right? That it's POs, Just Guys Xerox, and and Oath and Shops, Mm -hmm. then the ban is going to hit one of those four decks, likely, or dredge, which means that you're more likely to see a marginal or fringe deck play. Yeah. Actually see action. Yeah whether it's a, like a stacks deck or a merfolk deck or whatever, right? Yeah. So I think this I think because the the way that the metagame is currently constituted, I don't think it's a general rule. I think that the the five deck no ban would work probably have worked even better in previous iterations of vintage, but the way that the the equilibrium of the current metagame is settled, I think that the six deck one ban is a better format. I agree. 
I, I do want to see more creative decks like the Hornet yes. Queens brought that survival hollow one deck, which was way cool. And unfortunately had an awful matchup against our stacks deck, but that's not their fault. It was just a really cool list and it was really fun to see that in action. <laughs> Definitely. Um, talk, talk just a little bit more about, um, how, how you feel this format is, is kind of different, your experience. Obviously, you haven't had played a lot of matches, but you know you did really well in the last season of the VSL, and I didn't do half bad. Um, just what, what's the feeling different? What's the feel difference? The team element of it makes a complete difference. I feel like it's, a, it's a definitely a concerted effort, a joint effort. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've had decks that we've submitted because they were... Uh, personal favorites of ours we've had decks that we've submitted because we thought they were you know top metagame contenders we've had kind of everything in the middle there and i've really enjoyed the joint discussion of matchups and oh what deck are we going to put first so even though on screen it doesn't you know the show for the viewers doesn't necessarily look like a team sport reflect that whole thing yeah i mean players talk about it commentators talk about it there's no it's not like devoid of content from the team standpoint but Behind the scenes, it's a very team-oriented thing, and we're debating, oh, what are we going to put up next? Oh, if, if this deck wins, then we do this and that. It's I just love that element of it, which doesn't really exist in the one-person VSL, right? Yeah, you might talk to someone <laughs> about deck choices if you're not going to play them, but in general, this one is is very satisfying for that reason. I agree entirely. I, I, I'm really looking forward to the rest. I'm not sure that I will actually be in the playoffs unless they they're the timing in June, I probably will if we win one more. Because I'm going to be uh, traveling, I think, for some of July. So mm. we'll see how that goes. But if I'm not in there, we'll be bring, bringing in our backup, Andy Probasco, who will always bring some sweet decks and some sweet plays. Yeah. So if we hasn't said before, either publicly or in this show here, right, our team, uh, you and I and Jaco, as a fourth because we were anticipating possible scheduling conflicts. Brassman is our fourth. And while he has not been on camera or, or needed to jump in in the first two rounds, we are preparing for the likelihood that he will so that'll be fun too because andy's always a good time on vsl definitely so by the time our next show comes out we'll probably be talking about our playoff performance at least in the first round and possibly subsequent rounds thereafter so look forward to that yeah and hopefully we can do a little bit better than we did last time (laughs) well our team record was pretty lousy in round two but it it doesn't belie a terrible performance on our part, right? There were some close matches, some close games, and I, I don't talk, feel bad about it. Talk about that particular play I discussed on screen where you were mystical tutoring Well, in I, retrospect. Yeah, in hindsight, um, so I was against Oath, and my opponent had played, was, it was turn one Oath, right? I had gone first, and they played Oath on one, I think. Right. And I had, I, I can't recreate the scenario, but I had a bunch of options that involved Yawgmoth's will. I was I was looking with the Sensei's Divining Top on my upkeep, and I had access to Yawgmoth's will and Black Lotus, and so I strung to I choose chose to with my outcome deck to string together uh, a Yawgmoth's will that involved a couple of cantrips and try to see if I could end the game or at least resolve Tinker, for example, that turn. But Steve is alluding to the notion that I could have gone through Mystical Tutor to, to simply get Chain of Vapor and bounce Oath of Druids. And I felt like that that line you was... You had double force. You had force in hand, too. Yeah. And you had Snapcaster and... Fo- two Snapcasters and force. Yeah. And you uh, played Mystical. I felt like that line was um, basically trying to not lose as opposed to trying to win. But there's certainly a case to be made for it. It's definitely not, not a zero in my estimation. I just decided to be more aggressive and try and win the game 
and it did, it just didn't turn out. I, I I got very close, I think, in terms of turning the corner with my series of cantrips and Yawgmoth's will. But mm-hmm. in hindsight, it probably would have been superior to just chain the oath and and try to draw the game out. Part of the other reason I didn't do it was just because I didn't have a a game plan after that. I just well, had of- Snapcaster mages basically, which are not an A plan against oath. The other option, of course, is ancestral or paradoxical, which you could have done either one of those. Yeah. But and we were we were my calculation is that if you would you know because you had force in hand, if he replays the oath, you can force it, or if he replays it, you can snap chain it again, and then you're getting board presence so that you give yourself time to, yeah. to find a paradox. So when you do paradox, it's even bigger. Well, that's that's fair. It could have worked out that way, but I just didn't feel like it was going to in that situation. I think, though, in retrospect, the chances of you winning with Tinker are very, are not are well under fifty percent because he's going to get to Oath, and if he Oaths Inferno Titan, he'll block with the Blightsteel one turn, so he gets a second Oath. Yep. And and then his chances of finding the Gristlebrand at that point are fifty percent. Um, and if he finds Gristlebrand, then he just wins. Probably, you're you're probably right. I just I think it was probably a losing situation, no matter which line I took on average. I think both lines were probably sub 50%. Yeah. Well, it was pretty interesting, and I definitely look forward to giving it another shot, whomever we play. <laughs> yep. I'm looking forward to it as well. So, Steve, by way of other announcements, do you have any more updates for the history of Vintage? It's done. It's in the can. Uh, I think I've been waiting for a couple of weeks for Eternal Central to post the last chapter, um, and I've been going back to the earlier chapters and working on updating and revising those so we can get it all compiled. But by the time this is up, this uh, podcast is live. My guess is the final chapter, chapter 25, and the conclusion to the entire book will be up on Eternal Central. Awesome. Go check it out. So, in preparation for our SCG Power 9 metagame prediction, we're going to talk about a handful of large events that have that have finished recently. As Steve alluded to, we've begun tournament season here for 2018. And we're going to start with the very recently completed Waterbury. The Mana Drain Open 19. Yep, there you go. So, for those who don't know, which is probably very few of you at this point, but the Mana Drain <laughs> Open is is the new moniker for a long-standing tournament series, which old-timers like us refer to as the Waterbury, just because it took place in Waterbury, Connecticut. But the Mana Drain Open is the tournament series hosted by Ray Robillard, whom we had on the show many, many moons ago to talk about his tournament organization prowess. And this was another very successful event much like they have been for years. It looks like Ray had 108 players this time, which is pretty Not darn bad. healthy. Yeah. Yep. And so 108 players contributed to seven rounds of Swiss, and we're here to talk about what the top eight looked like after all was said and done. The winner was Justin Gennari, Gennari or Gennari, who played the, the, the Snap Cardster Paradoxical Mentor deck with one change, notoriously. He <laughs> cut he cut the Mystical Tutor for Arayo... <laughs> So, Soratami Ascendant. Um, Paradoxical Outcome took it down, winning the Waterbury. Pretty remarkable performance. And he wrote a very entertaining uh, tournament report um, entitled Captain of the Ship, <laughs> which is actually a link to a Google document. 
um, Google, <laughs> uh, uh, Google doc, uh, that is uh, very well formatted and organized. And um, yeah, it's even got a table of contents. <laughs> but <laughs> nice. this player did really well, and uh, he did. He has a beautifully detailed tournament report, but he took it down. And in fact, not only did he take it down, but he beat um, Joe Brennan, who is one of the most well-known um, Xerox players in the Northeast, playing playing Just Guy Mentor. Mm-hmm. So let's run down the, the full top eight. What do you say? Just from an architect standpoint. Keep going. So if in first place is Justin, as you said, on Paradoxical Outcome. Second place, Joe Brennan on Xerox Mentor. He's just guy and notably with main deck young Pyromancer times two and main deck containment priest times two. Definitely a, a metagame illusion there. Third place is written on what appears to be a napkin coated in blood. I'm not sure. <laughs> We're looking at handwritten deck lists here. Steve, what do you make of this list? It has four Snapcaster mages, this is, right? This is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is this is a young Pyromancer list. It's it's funny. Yes, I can't this, tell if this is also uh, Jeskai, is it? Well, he has Tassiger is the, the thing. Oh, okay. Um, so more like Grixis. It's a four color. Yeah, he's got, exactly. Sorry, it's got, <laughs> it's three colors. Right, it's Grixis. It's Grixis Pyromancer. Okay, gotcha. Then in fourth place, we have David, looks like Lysik. Can't sp- see the spelling of his last name in full. Yeah, come on handwriting, guys. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and uh, unfortunately, I don't know David personally. This is Landstill featuring famous fairy Conclave, which is the first card that stands out to me. But more, mostly traditional blue-white Landstill here. In fifth place, looks like J.P. Kohler with Mishra's Bauble. Hmm, very interesting. A Tezzeret Agent of Bolas, Karn, Scion of Urza, Thoughtcast Outcome deck, which is very cool. <laughs> That's three yep. copies of Karn, Scion of Urza, no making kidding. top eight at the Waterbury, which is pretty awesome. Next up is Josh, help me out here, Lalo, Leo. <laughs> Come on, handwriting guys. This is the, the literally the worst handwritten top eight I've ever seen. <laughs> I'm going. I'm going to the. I'm going to the not handwritten version of the players' names. Josh Lalo. Yeah. <clears throat> Again with Just Guy. Yeah. This is one Teferi hero of Dominaria. <laughs> right. Which is fantastic. In addition to the other standard planeswalkers, looks like does this list have just Monastery Mentor as creatures? I think it does. And he's got, search for he's Ascanta. Got three, three Snapcasters. Oh, I'm sorry. I saw that they were buried in the list from my eyes. Okay. Yep. Th- mentor and, and Snaps. So and this one is a tiny Jace. Yeah. This is a Planeswalker heavy version of Jeskai. So in seventh place, we have Daniel with Paradoxical Storm. And the noteworthy features here are few. There are very few noteworthy features. I'm seeing Mentor. This looks like a very stock Esper list at the moment. Although yes. he doesn't have he does not have Combal in the sideboard, so I guess he that has is a no tendrils wordy. of agony, which is the different point. He's ah. got one one seed of Synod, a little bit more black, and one tendrils. Are there any rituals here? No, no, no rituals. Okay, so unless one you count tendrils. Box Opal as a ritual, <laughs> <laughs> all right, or Mana Mana Vault. And then in eighth place, we have Michael Scheffenacker on Mishra's Workshop. This is. Looks like pretty standard fare: four Ravagers, four Overseers, four Inspectors, four Ballistas, well, but. Yeah. Two Traxos Scourge of Krug to go with his three Fleet Wheel Cruisers. So a Traxos take on car shops, which is pretty right. awesome. So to summarize it, only one workshop deck in the top eight. Yep. Um, several, Lots of Xerox. Yeah. I mean, was it three or four Xerox? 
So looks like three and three in terms of Xerox and outcome in this top eight plus shops and land still. Wow, that's a pretty big shift from the <laughs> five workshop three oath metagame of the Vintage Championship for a big a big American event too. Yeah, with Brian right. Kelly and Rich Shea in the tournament. Yes, definitely, and also an interesting statement on Dominaria in Vintage. Three was it four? Yes. Three or four different Dominaria cards making a statement in this top eight. Karn, Traxos, and Teferi. Were there any damping spheres? Oh, you know, I didn't study the sideboards close enough to see if there are any if there are any damping spheres. Let me go back and take a quick look. Nope, zero damping sphere in the sideboards. Very interesting. So the one card that we were, I think, most excited about and anticipating input from Dominaria is the one that's not here. But Karn <laughs> is exciting. Traxos <laughs> is exciting, and I'm actually pretty surprised by Teferi, Hero of Dominaria. Especially in a Grixis deck, if if you were to ask me what archetype I thought that Teferi would appear in, I would have definitely laid odds on Landstill and not not just a straight up Planeswalker heavy Jeskai deck. But here it is. So right. good job, Dominaria. No kidding. So Steve, this is definitely a departure, as you said, not only from last year's champs, but also from the online metagame. The online metagame in April has not looked this way in the challenges. What was we'll the get breakdown to that. for April? Okay, we'll get to that. Yeah. Well, we'll get to that. Next, we want to go to yeah, Eternal Weekend Europe, which also recently occurred. That was a, another big event. The total number of players... Unfortunately, we didn't have a lot of good coverage of it. If, if you follow uh, Peach on Twitter, he <laughs> actually did a good job of, of taking as many photos and updating folks as possible, including posting final standings and the top eight playoff bracket and things like that. But Aside from that, we really didn't have great coverage. It was really disappointing, in fact. So there were 120 players, Kevin, um, at this good. event. Good. Very good. Yeah. And we have data for the not only the top eight, but the top 16 and the top 32 as well. So we can talk about how each of those broke down. Do you want to get into the top eight? But yeah, the top eight actually, in some ways, is pretty close to, in some ways, pretty close to the, the Waterbury results. Let me read the whole metagame breakdown, Kevin. Yeah, go ahead. So the whole metagame breakdown was 24 Jeskai control decks, which I assume are mostly Xerox decks, um, 19 Mud, Workshop Aggro, 19 Paradoxical Outcome decks, 11 Oath, 10 Bug, 8 Eldrazi, 8 Grixis Control, 4 Dredge, 3 Dark Depths BG, 2 Red Prison, 2 Landstill, 2 Flash Omniscience, 1 Dark Petition Storm, and 7 others. It's the whole breakdown. Yeah. So they like their Xerox decks in Europe and continue to, and Oath not Oath, excuse me, Outcome and Shops in second place, followed by Oath. So there's your four-deck metagame. And exactly. was, Dredge, was Dredge in fifth? Uh, Dredge, Dredge was... only at, no, Dredge, there's only four Dredge decks. Oh, interesting. So light Out on Dredge Out of 120 players, Europe. that's 3% Dredge. <laughs> interesting. That's that, that's almost certainly going to be dramatically different in the U.S. when it comes to SCG Con. So, but Jeskai was exactly 20% of the metagame. Yeah. And, and Mud and Paradoxical Outcome were both 16% of the metagame rounded up, rounding up. Okay. So then do we trans- transition to the top eight then? Sorry, did I say Oath? I meant Workshops and Paradoxical Outcome were both 16%. There you go. Not Oath, yeah. So the top eight featured three Xerox decks, all Jeskai, and then five unique other decks. One Outcome, Dredge, Eldrazi, Grixis, and Landstill. So actually, an interesting dichotomy in the top eight of diversity, because six different archetypes, but still overarching dominant representation by Jeskai with three in the top eight, overrepresented based on uh, Swiss representation. Exactly. The winner was Alfonso (laughs) Zarzozo, 
Zar Zoso on Mentor. Okay. He played the so-called uh, Tagore's Mentor. <laughs> ah, so a list that Rodrigo came up with or made famous? I'm not familiar. I think, I think, I think Rodrigo shipped in the deck. Oh, okay. Gotcha. That makes sense. Rodrigo does develop good decks. So, <laughs> so here we have, after the Waterberry, which had a strong representation for Xerox three copies and Outcome three copies, went one by Outcome over Jeskai in the finals. Now here we have three copies of Xerox again, this time taking down the event and only one Outcome in the top eight. So there's definitely some common trends here. The top 16 for this event tells a slightly different story because the some of the other under less represented decks step in namely three workshop decks in the top 16 so just outside the top eight were three workshop decks but there was yet more xerox there's a total of five xerox in the top 16 so it was still continued to be the most represented overall hashtag archetype in the top 16 and that continues when you go to the top 32 eight xerox in the top 32 the next most popular deck becomes Outcome with six. So when you look at the top 32 of the Eternal Weekend in Europe, it mirrors, it starts to mirror the Waterberry results pretty closely with the top two decks being, the top deck being Xerox, but then Shops and Outcome being just behind in third and fourth place and very close, um, very close ratios. And then shortly after that, in the case of the top 32 here for Eternal Weekend Europe was Grixis, or Big Blue, with 13%. And after that, Eldrazi and Oath at 9%. So 25% in the top 32 Xerox, well, 31% in the top 16, and 38% in the top 8. Yeah. So Xerox overrepresented itself throughout the entire top 32 and continued to do so yeah, all the way con- up. It converted very well, yes. And what about Shops? Shops, I mean, Shops was... 16% of the metagame and 19% of the top 16. But then none of them made top six, eight. Yeah. None, yeah, zero in the top eight. And it was exactly proportionate in the top 32. So it, and it squeaked into the top eight in the Waterbury. So this is a big fall for shops. It seems like we've seen either a huge metagame adjustment or just these tournaments are big enough to really tell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting. We have at least a few more data points to support these two that we can talk about, but they tell a dramatically different story. And those are the vintage challenges for the last month and a half. Now we have the compiled results for April because we're here recording in mid-May. And our friends, as always, Matt Murray and Ryan Eberhard have put this together as they continue to do. And we're always grateful to them for doing so. So the combined total, and we can talk about individual trends week over week, but the combined total for April in terms of Magic Online Vintage challenges, the most represented deck was Workshops. And it's way above what we just described for these other two large paper tournaments. That's at 27% for hmm. the, court, the month of April. The second most represented deck is, no surprise, Xerox at 17%. That's, I mean, that's a pretty big gap. 27 Definitely. to 17, especially in contrast to these paper results we're seeing. Third place online is Dredge at 14%. So another... Just wild departure from right, what we've paper seen. Right, to, to yeah. Magic Online. And fourth place is Oath. Outcome is in is tied for fifth place at 9% with Fish in April Online. <laughs> way, less, way less results for Outcome than in paper. I think there's a lot of oscillations in Outcome. Outcome seems to do really well in, in online, and then it disappears the next week, and that does really well yeah. again. 
So it's been one at, of the themes of our metagame reports for the last year or so is week over week outcome goes way like, up and way down. Like just looking at April, for example, it goes from 11.3 to 6.4 to 11.5 to 6%. So it just, and it sometimes spikes to 20% and then just disappears the next week. So, yeah. um, but outcome, outcome has been doing really well. It just has. I mean, it's one one of these challenges at least. Um, it did. It you know, did win. Yep, in the hands of our competitor in the VSL, Michael Bondi. And I would point out though that for the whole month of April, outcomes match win percentage is just under fifty percent, forty nine point one percent. But the spikes are wild because in one week, the fourteenth of April, it had a match win percentage of sixty one percent, and the very next week, its match win percentage was thirty two percent. <laughs> so I, I mean, you, you just have to take with a grain of salt the the average results for outcome because, as you said, it vacillates wildly. Right. Unlike Xerox, for example, which has been pretty consistent, the much narrower band in the high teens in terms of representation with an average of seventeen. Xerox is consistently represented online, which is in contrast to outcomes performance. I think part of the reason is it's it's very difficult to metagame in the inside of the current four slash five deck structure. It's difficult to metagame against. Uh, Xerox decks, right? right? There's no, there's no silver bullet. You can tweak cards here or there that are just slightly better. You can tweak ratios, get more, you know, one more pyroblast here, that kind of thing. But outcome is much easier to spike, right? You just add Stony Silence back into your main deck or Mindbreak Trap into your sideboard in in many archetypes. Null Rods can make an appearance in even the Ravager aggro decks if they want, and so it's much easier for people to quote unquote hate outcome than it is for them to hate xerox (laughs) i think that's exactly right i think that the the xerox i mean it's we still don't know exactly how these different cards are playing out so we don't know for example what effect damping sphere is having on shops or on xerox or on po we just don't know for sure um because we haven't we don't have the full set of deck lists or you know can monitor those interactions but my guess is that part of what's happening is that paradox is is attacking the shop's Xerox metagame. And unless folks are coming out with Stony Silence, because Null Rod is not enough, um, unless people are coming out with Stony Silence, Paradox is going to be doing, continue to be do- doing pretty well, I think. Yeah, I agree with you. It will probably be well represented. Are we shifting into our predictions then for SCG Con? Well, I, why don't, I mean, these are two really big events. Is there anything holistic we can say? I mean, it just seems like if you look at these two events, the paper events, which are, of course, the most predict- predictive because yeah. they're paper. It seems like the consistency is that Xerox is the biggest part of the metagame. Is 20% of Eternal Weekend Europe, and we don't know exactly what part it was at the Waterbury, but we can assume it was pretty big since there were three of them in the top eight. Yeah. Um, and Paradoxical is probably next, it, right there with Mud. Um, although there was only one workshop deck in the Waterbury top eight and none in the European uh, Weekend Eternal, uh, the U- Eternal Weekend Europe event. And then it just seems like Oath is behind that. And I mean, I think that the surprising thing to me is the tiny, I guess 6.6% of Eldrazi is not tiny. That's still, you know, um, that's still it's, eight Eldrazi players. Yeah, I mean, it's it's below the spikes we've seen, but it's not it's no, not insignificant. It's actually right. Yeah, it's right. I mean, in I mean, North Champs, American, we saw it was like six, seven, eight percent So it's just a hair below. Yeah, Champs 2017's Eldrazi was 10%. And, and okay. we know that was a high number, right? Which is overrepresented because it's sanctioned, that kind of thing. But I would consider 6% to be a nominal amount of Eldrazi. Fair enough. And we've been talking about how Eldrazi is, is on a decline of late. We have, yeah. 
but it's definitely definitely going to spike higher than its nominal rate in recent months because of the sanctioning of the event. Right. Well, let's yeah, let's turn now to the SCG Con. We've got a lot to say, Kevin. So I would first posit that if you're going to wait the results of the things we've just discussed, there's three major signposts, right? There's Eternal yeah. Weekend Europe, there's Waterbury, and then there's online. I think you would definitely put the Eternal Weekend Europe results in third place in terms of importance there. <laughs> and geography I, I is agree. a big part of that. I would agree with you except for one thing. It's okay. a sanctioned event and the SEG Con will also be sanctioned. But okay. I, I think that's that matters. It, There's it no matters. proxies yeah. allowed. Yeah. yeah. And as such, you should read the Waterbury results with a grain of salt because that was a proxy event. And so the budget decks are, were bound to be slightly re- underrepresented in that event. But on the flip side, the players in question, if you were to pick one of the three tentpole data points we're pointing to here, the Waterbury has the most players in common with this upcoming Star City event. That's it's, true. It's on the that's east coast true. of the United States. It's going yes, to have, it'll the, have most, the largest percentage of player overlap, yeah. if that's what you're looking for. <laughs> the, yes. And so that means something, right? Because certain people tend to bring certain decks. The Magic Online players, the, the frequent players in the Magic Online challenges, will also probably be pretty well represented at this event in person. We can expect to see a number of, of reliable everyday players on Magic Online that are in the player pool here for Roanoke. Definitely. And so that will have an impact too, right? If Rich Shea shows up, you know there's a, there's a, a specific band of decks that Rich tends to when he plays in these large sanctioned events of late so you can calibrate yourself that way same goes for brian kelly if he shows up that kind of thing so those are factors i would also point to the fact that the um the (laughs) there will be reactionary elements to these existing events that's another factor as well the fact that xerox has done so well in these past two events will be on a lot of players minds and so i don't know exactly how the reaction will manifest because as I said, it's, it's tricky to hate out Xerox, but you have to believe that there'll be somebody who's building their deck and they'll look at their 75 and they'll say, you know, I think I want another Flusterstorm here, or I think I want another Pyroblast here for Xerox because it's doing so well lately. And it's that kind of incremental shift that tends to push metagame numbers when it's done in large enough scale. So bear those things in mind. I still... I still think that Xerox will be very strongly represented. I believe that workshops will be have higher representation than they did in either of the prior two paper events. That's my instinct. Why do you think that is? I think for a couple of reasons. One, I think some people will view shops as a reactionary solution to Xerox and outcome. Yeah. I think that others will be excited by new printings, especially after they've seen Traxos make top eight. And after they've seen Karn Cyanaversa being played in the Team VSL and in other archetypes, I think there's a bit of an attraction to playing with new shiny things as well. And Shops has, I think, the most new shiny things, especially from Dominaria. But so, but um, Damping Sphere, you don't think will dissuade people in any, any way? No, I don't. Because I'm, I'm not convinced that the community as a whole views Damping Sphere as a successful anti-shop card. It, I don't think there's any proof of that from a sub, uh, substantive standpoint there's only been theory crafting and maybe a, a few anecdotal examples streaming or in vsl that kind of thing but in general i don't believe that's an accepted fact okay well. so i expect the, i expect the shop numbers to be slightly higher than they have been in these past two paper events 
but possibly not as high as they have been online. I think that online is a pretty shop-friendly environment <laughs> um, for, for a number of reasons, right? It, there's some history there because historically shops have been very popular online. They've performed very well online. And also there's budgetary considerations because shops is a very expensive deck to build and it's only getting more expensive. And so all those reasons combined means that shops, I think, I don't think in paper we're going to see the 27% that we've seen in April online. I'm also thinking back to Champs 2017, where Shops was only 17%, but Eldrazi was another 10%, and I think we're going to be closer to those numbers, maybe not all the way there, but closer to those numbers at SCGCon. Fair enough. I, I, um, I'm not quite ready to make my predictions yet, but I, I think this is an important analysis, and I think we're making significant progress. Um, what, do you, what do you project for Eldrazi, Tribal Eldrazi, at SCGCon? Based upon th- what we know. Yeah, I think the floor is 5% and the ceiling is 10%, which is not earth-shattering. And so I would put my estimate right there in the middle, 7 or 8%, I think. Well, um, I actually dis- disagree with you pretty strongly on that point, Kevin. Uh, with I regard think- to Relzrazi, you mean? Yes, I do. Okay. I think there's a big difference, I think. So, number one, uh, Eternal Weekend is an event where if you're, in a, if you're a legacy player, uh, you can go to the Eternal Weekend most of the costs are sunk, right? You've got your hotel. You, you know, the entry fee is actually pretty minimal. Yeah. And if you ha- can build Eldrazi, it does. It's not that expensive. You actually enroll in the event, and you get a play mat that's basically worth the entry anyway. That's not true of the Power Nine event. The Power Nine event is structured mm. such that two things. Number one, the cost is a hundred dollars to get in, yeah. uh, and it, which is more than I think it's, but basically double what Eternal Weekend entry fee is. Number two, you don't get a, a big playmat like that. I don't think we should double check that. Um, and number three, the event is such that you can't actually play in the legacy and vintage event. So the chances of someone going to say play, you know, who's a legacy player just wanting to dip in the vintage event are really low. Now you can go, I think, play in both the vintage event and try and win that event and play in the no ban list modern. So I think those differences actually make a huge difference. I think that the number of of Eldrazi is going to be about 50% of what you just projected. I think that wow. the floor is somewhere around 2.5% and the ceiling is about 5%. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Well, I hadn't considered those factors, and you, you may be onto something there. I would, I would diminish what you described a little bit only in that I don't think that most legacy players who are in the position you described play Eldrazi necessarily. I think some of them also build decks like Delver, and some of them might be unpowered, or some of them might be able to borrow, you know, th- three or four pieces from a friend. But but the effect you described is probably still present, and I won't be surprised if my estimate is too high because of it. Yeah. So I'm I am gonna guess about four percent Eldrazi, maybe even less, maybe like three point five four percent is my prediction of tribal okay. Eldrazi. So I'll go on record for that. You can put me in the chart for that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we got it. Okay, that makes sense. That's it's reasonable. Um, I also think that your um, your percentage of um, yeah, I'll go. I mean, I did. I said the range is uh, two and a half to five, so I'll go. Just put my number right in the middle of that, whatever that is. Um, Three point seven five. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay. I also your project your projection for shops. Your number was what again? Oh, I think it's going to be closer to 17% than it is to 27%, but I don't have a I don't have I didn't put an exact number on it yet. I think it's going to be about 15%. Yeah, I think I, it's going I, to be higher than that. 
I think that the problem with shops is that is that just the paper, the access to four workshops, especially with the cost of shops these days, it's just hard to get them. And I know we saw a lot at Eternal Weekend, but I think there are going to be a lot of people who aren't going to go to this who would go to Eternal Weekend. Mm-hmm. So I think it's going to be a little bit a shade on the lower side. Interesting. I think like players like Eric Virgo, he told me he's probably not going. You know, I know a lot of people like that. So yeah, okay. Well, I'm wondering though that effect that you talked about about players not going does that favor Xerox players? I think it does in the sense that I think Shops is going to do well, but I think that it it means there'll be a slightly more Xerox than I think there'll be definitely be more Xerox than Champs last year. I don't think there's any question of that. Yeah, well, I, I think that goes without saying at this point. Last year, Champs was 14% for reference, and I think we both agree that Xerox number will be higher than that this year. Yeah, I think the I think it'll be like 22, 23%, something like that is my number for Xerox. You know, look at what we've seen for Xerox in the April, right? In April. In April, challenges, Xerox was, I guess, 17.3% overall. So I think I think it's going to be around there for paper. I'm I think it's going to be around twenty to twenty two percent at this particular event. Okay. I'm going to go. I'll just go at twenty percent on paper. Just write it down. Okay. Yep. Um, I still can't shake the notion. I'm mean, sorry. I agree and by with Xerox, you. I specifically mean uh, just guy. I mean, so you're counting only just guy there, and any Delver, any um, like blue red Delver or Grixis top, would be on, on top, top of that. that. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I thought you were talking about an all in number. That's even more noteworthy. Because Jeskai was only 8% at Champs last year. So you're talking about more than a doubling in Jeskai? Yes, I do. I think it's wow. going to be really big. I mean, uh, I mean, look, it, it just won your Eternal Weekend Europe. So. Yeah. Well, so are you predicting an increase in outcome versus Champs as well? Unquestionably. Outcome yeah. is on a big upward trajectory. Um, I think the floor is what we've seen in the challenges. And I think both with the VSL results and with other things, I think we're going to see a lot more of that. Interesting. Okay. Well, then I guess the only X factors are Dredge and Oath, and I guess we got to talk about Bug because Bug has been doing so well online lately. What's your prediction on outcome, in, though? And it's definitely going to be much higher. I think that eighteen percent is a little too much, though. I yeah, I think that it's going to be. I'm going to go with fifteen percent, and that that feels even possibly high to me. But I think the numbers bear out that that fifteen percent is probably about right. Well, bear <clears> in mind that it, you know Eternal Weekend Europe. Paradoxical was 16%, and it's doing better now. <laughs> so yeah. it's hard to imagine that it'll be less than that. But Well, something has to give, right? I mean, something has to... The, the numbers you're describing, you've only described dramatic increases. Okay, you described a drop Not in Eldrazi. A, but right. you described... So far, you've accounted for, looks like, at 12... You've accounted for a 24% increase I, in two well, decks. I, I think well, I mean, I described at the top of the show that I think that the, there are four decks plus dredge yep. that are the bulk of the vintage metagame. I agree so, with you. So you've described a twenty-four percent overall increase in Jeskai in outcome, twelve percent yes. each. I don't you've think you're going to see nearly a, as much Delver. Delver is going to be a tiny percentage. Like you've described like a two percent drop in shops, so you're still plus twenty-two percent over last year. You've described a what looks like a six percent, six or seven percent drop in Eldrazi. So now you're plus. You're only about plus uh, 15, give or take. So you, you got to come up with 15% drop elsewhere in the metagame. Where does it come from? Well, I think I think what we're seeing is a consolidation. I, I don't think we're going to see as many fringe decks in the high numbers. I think that the metagame is consolidating around Shops, Jeskai, Outcome, and Oath. I, I think that the dredge numbers are going to continue to be quite low. 
Okay. I mean, Eternal Weekend, we saw... I mean, Eternal Weekend Europe, again, remember, Drudge was only 3.3%, which is way below Vintage Champs. Yep. And again, I think the same dynamic is applicable vis-a-vis Dredge as Eldrazi. Number one, Dredge saw a huge surge because it was immediately after Hollow One was printed. So Dredge was doing really well on Magic Online. That's not the case right now. Well, um, keep in mind that on Magic Online, Dredge was 14% in April, the third April. most popular deck in April. That's fair. I, I just also think that when you combine the $100 entry fee with the things that I talked about, I mean, there are very few kind of dedicated dredge pilots, in my opinion, mm. who are going to go just to play that. So I think dredge is going to be closer to 5% than 10%. I'm going to predict she's, I, I really don't want to go much. I'm going to go 5%. That might be low, but that's where I'm going to go. Yeah. Well, it's not too low. If it's low, it's not too low. My guess was going to be 7%. <clears throat> so it's not a big deal. Um, it's interesting though, because Bug has won, or, or four color variants of Bug have won like three out of the last six vintage challenges, something like that, and mm-hmm. two out of the last three. So Bug has shown a major increase, at least in terms of winning challenges online in the last couple of weeks. I wonder how that's going to manifest. Bug was 6% at champs last year and continues to be, it continues to try to place somewhat of a spoiler for Xerox, although it can't quite get over the hump because Leo just matches up terribly against Pyroblast. Yep. So I consider, I, I expect Bug to be about the same. I'm picturing Bug in the 5% range. That's exactly what I think. Yeah. I, I would give it like 5, 5.5%, somewhere yeah. around there. Now, noteworthy. Now, it, it, it did win some recent Vintage Challenges, so it could yeah. do okay, but. That'll motivate some people, but we'll see how many. Noteworthy Vintage Champs last year had 4.5% land still, which is something that you called and I did not anticipate. I expect that to mostly diminish. I completely agree. We're not going to see a lot of land still. The one thing that I did want to just mention that I think Bug has going for it is that it's a deck that can easily run some main deck Null Rod, so that can buy you time to get the Leovald down against Outcome. Yeah. But it's it's really weakly positioned against Xerox, which I think is going to be the biggest metagame player. Yeah, so that's a fair point all around. So I'm going to be higher on shops than you are. I'm just trying to recalibrate here. You said 15%. I think it's going to be closer to... The way you talked about it makes me... I'm definitely going to closer to 17 than 27. I don't think it's going to be anywhere near 27. <laughs> but I'm wondering Remember, if this, it's going to be... we're not talking about top eights here. It could be 27% of the top eight. But the overall metagame, it's not going to be more than 25% of the metagame. There's no way. No, I agree with you. There is no way. I'm going to go... I think it's going to be slightly more popular than Champs last year, though. I'm going to go 19, 19%. And in terms of Eldrazi, I'm predicting a bit of a drop in Eldrazi, not as much as you are, but overall, I think people will shift from Eldrazi to shops a little bit. But that's not really, that's not the the actual dynamic. Players aren't picking up shops from Eldrazi. It's just, I think shops is far more popular than Eldrazi has been for the last several months. I I don't know if I said this, but I think Oath is going to, we're going to see more than we did at Champs. Because number one, Oath was the best performing blue deck at Vintage Champs. Number two, yeah. Oath, I think, is pretty decently positioned against the Xerox decks, and it's just the best deck you can play, I think, hands down against the Workshop deck. Um, and I think if people are going to be playing like Brian Kelly's list with Damping Sphere and things like that, yeah. I think I think it just is really well positioned. It's just a powerful deck. I think we're going to see more of it than we saw at Vintage Champs. I think it's going to be in the 11 to 12% range, which is pretty close to where it was at European Champs, right? And European Champs, it was what? It was nine. It was 9%. So I think we're going to yeah. see more of it here. Because I think people will expect a more concentrated Xerox Shops metagame. What do you make of the fact that it didn't make top 8 at either the two paper events, though? Well, Anything? I, v- variants? Not, 
Not particularly. I I mean, <laughs> partly variants, partly you know. So think about think about what happened at Eternal Weekend, right? There were three Oath players. One was Brian Kelly, <laughs> right? Two were <laughs> Kelly Oath. Yeah. Um. So there's that. Yep. Um. My guess is it's also probably more of an American phenomenon. I would like to see exactly how many people played it at the Waterbury. My guess is the Waterbury is not exactly the place for it. Because the Waterbury, this is the thing. This is why I don't think the Waterbury is actually a good indicator of this event. Mm-hmm. Remember, uh, we played in the SCG series, Power 9 series back in the day in the Waterbury. And those metagames were very different. Yeah. One of the reasons the metagame is different is because the Waterbury metagame tends to gravitate more towards the aggro control access, axis. That is that that like low to the ground Xerox type decks do much better at the Waterbury, and there's a much larger blue imprint. Whereas in the Star City Games tournaments, there's a much larger shop imprint. Shops tend to be underplayed at Waterburys and overplayed at Star City Games events, and and also Midwest, Southeast, Atlantic events. So I think that I think we're going to see a lot more Oath as a result, and Oath will do better at the Star City Games Power 9 event. Interesting. Well, we're going to have to massage our numbers a little bit here because I feel like we're we're predicting... I feel like you're predicting over 100% at this point, so we might have we'll, to... We'll take a we'll look have to at do it. the math. Yeah. <laughs> but I still need to iron out. So I think Xerox... Xerox is tricky. So it's been at 17 or 18% online. It was even higher in the paper events. You're predicting 20% Jess guy and 22% Xerox overall. And the more I think about it, that seems pretty reasonable. I think that it does make sense for it to come in as a higher percentage than online. And if it's at 17 online, then well, yeah, I guess 19 or 20% is reasonable in paper. All of the decks that I've, I've predicted so far added up equal 81.25%, which gives okay. me 19% other. I think that's about right. If anything, maybe I'm a little low on shops. Maybe it's going to be about 16.5%. And I think that, you know, when you, I actually think DPS is, I, I didn't put this down there. I think DPS is going to be a, a fairly big part of the metagame. Like, I think it's going to be like three to 4%. I yeah. think this is the event where people are going to want to bring out Dark Petitions, Dark Petition Storm. I think it's going to do pretty well. I would not be surprised if there's even one in the top eight. I think it's going to be like 4%, honestly. Wow. And that gets me to 85%, which then just, you know, you add the random decks and the other blue decks and you get to 100%. So I'm right there. It's not even close to over 100, Kevin. Okay. Well, so then my oath call is, I think, boy, it's really tricky. I'm wondering, because oath at 10% of the metagame at champs last year was a bit of a surprise to me and not much. The three in the top eight was obviously way overrepresented, but... I just wonder how people are interpreting that lately. There hasn't been that much shift in Oath's development since Champs last year. Brian Kelly continues to be on the forefront. He continues to do things like Arlen Cord, and he continues to try Damping Sphere, for example. But there hasn't been a major sea change as there have been in, in Oath's recent history. So I'm wondering if people will soften on it a little bit. But it's really hard to predict. So... I think it's going to be pretty close to champs net last year. I'm just going to go with 10%. It's it has factors pushing it in both directions. Last yeah. year's champs performance is a fact, you know, a mark in its favor, but the relative lack of recent new technology is a mark against it. I think. I, I think I want to be clear about this. I think shops is going to be not as much as you predict. I think it's going to be about 16 to 17%. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to do much better than it's done recently, though. 
Uh, so I think its performance in the metagame is going to do better, which means that I think Oath is also going to do better. Interesting. Okay. Well, that's a that's a good read. And there's always about 5% big blue, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, yeah. But I think DPS is going to be... I think we're going to see quite a few combo decks. People are, people are going to want to break it out, and it's very powerful, and it can compete against all these decks, I think, honestly. I mean, the yeah. Hercules plan is so strong against shops right now. Um, I think DPS can easily overpower Xerox, and I think it can outrace Paradoxical. So I think DPS is well-positioned. Yeah, and the recent uh, Team VSL performance of DPS, too, might have a little bit to do with that because there was really an interesting flash-in-the-pan kind of in week one. Yeah. All right, so there you have it. We're looking at... I'm just going to talk about both our numbers really briefly. We're looking at predicting the top representation by Xerox, primarily Jeskai, at Jeskai at 20 to 20%, total Xerox at 22 to 23%. We're looking at second most represented deck being outcome, 15 to 18%, then shops at 17 to 19%. The range is actually broader for shops, but those are basically tied for second. And then in third place, Oath, 10 or 11%, followed by Bug, Dredge, Big Blue, and DPS. So that's our overall prediction for the metagame. You think that shops will do... You think that shops will have a better, maybe top eight, top sixteen turnover than it did at the Waterbury? Yes, I'm expecting and, at least two shops decks in the top eight. Yeah, and you think that as such, Oath will also have a corollary improvement. Yes. I think one of the reasons is that if you're a top flight shop player, this is the event to break out your best tech at. You yeah. know, Eternal Weekend is far enough away that this is the this is the tournament you're really preparing in advance for. Yeah. So. I, I think we're gonna see. I think we're gonna see a lot of shops, and I think people know it, and that's why they're gonna bring Oath. If you're a paper player, I think we might see multiple copies of Karn, Scion, Aversa in the top eight, and it could <laughs> I would be not in more that. than one archetype. We'll. we'll, we'll <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised to see a Karn in a shops deck and a Karn in, <laughs> in a, a outcome in an outcome deck. Yeah, in this top eight. Interesting. Yeah. So let's talk about the nature then of the the event itself, just for review for all of our listeners. If you're not already planning to go to SCG Con, then you might be interested to learn June 8th through 10th in Roanoke, Virginia. The the event in question that we've been discussing is the Power Nine series, which is a two-day event, interestingly enough. As Steve said, $100 entry fee. It starts at 10 a.m. on Friday, the 9th. No, I'm sorry, the 8th. Sorry. And it goes for a zillion rounds. <laughs> it certainly uh, does. What is the actual round count, Steve? Remember, is it 13? I can't remember what they've planned for. So day one is actually um, eight rounds of Swiss, and then day two is five rounds of Swiss. And yeah. all players with 18 match points will advance to day two, which means that if you go six and two or better, you'll make it to day two. Yeah. And, and it's, it's 18 match points is, or are tied for top 32. Right. Also, just to be clear here, which means that if you're outside of the top 32, but you have 18 points, you'll still make it. Yes, right? exactly. Yeah. Exactly. The other thing to point out, though, is that this day two is five rounds of Swiss plus the cut to top eight. So it's technically eight more rounds if you win the tournament. <laughs> wow. And well, I'm not eight rounds of top eight, three rounds. Yeah. I, no, eight rounds overall. Day two. Oh, yeah. Okay. I got you. So prizes go down to the top 32. So it seems like everyone in 
This is interesting. I don't know if that means everyone in day two will get prize or not. <laughs> if more than 32 people make it, then no, not everyone in day two will prize. I wonder how they're planning to handle that. I wonder if they'll extend it down to everyone in day two. That's interesting. But the top eight drafts, not drafts, the top eight wins effectively a piece of the power nine with first place getting Black Lotus and Time Twister. This is an interesting point in that in the past, the power nine events, the top eight would draft the power nine, basically. And first place would pick the Black Lotus and always end up with Time Twister. Well, <laughs> this time they're just they're just making that the first place prize, Lotus and Twister. And then they've chosen the second through seventh or second through eighth place prizes in what I assume to be order of average price. But obviously card condition will bear will bear on this. But it goes Max Sapphire, Ancestral Recall, Jet Walk, Emerald, Pearl, Ruby for eighth place. <laughs> and then uh, the top sixteen and top thirty two get uh, SCG credit. Right. And there is a playmat. The Power Nine tournament has a Steel Overseer playmat in addition to some other tchotchkes for reg- well, uh, registration. If that doesn't have symbolic import, I don't know what does. <laughs> God. God. Yeah, definitely. So, Steve, is there anything else about SCGCon that you wanted to point out for our listeners? No, I think we've covered pretty much everything that matters. Um, I think it's going to be a really intense battle. I, I, I'm still having a hard time accepting the fact that Star City Games is going to remain committed to this format. Yeah, and and so I think someone should verify that with them because if this is a if this is a sixty to hundred player tournament, having thirteen rounds of Swiss is just egregious overkill, isn't it? I mean, isn't oh, that just? It really is, you know. And I'm glad you mentioned that because there is one other thing I wanted to talk about that bears on the metagame as a whole. It might not bear so much on the metagame, but on the conversion rate of decks. And that is, with so many rounds to be played, consistency is of the utmost. Mm -hmm. The decks that win this tournament are going to have played consistently well for dozens upon dozens of rounds. (laughs) Okay, it's not dozens upon dozens. More than a dozen rounds, right? This is going to be the most rounds that anyone has played of Vintage in any one event in possibly ever. I can't think of an event where someone would have been called on to play this much vintage just to make a top eight. Yeah. And it's, so it's an incredible amount. I mean, I think that actually favors Xerox decks a fair bit. Xerox and shops. I agree. Because of the top five decks, the five deck metagame, uh, Dredge will have draw, its, yeah, draw itself out. out of a match um, more so than any other deck. And I think Oath second most out of that. Despite how good Oath is against shops, Oath will just draw itself out of matches more so than any of the other decks that we've listed. And I think third amongst decks that will do that is Outcome. Especially if you're on a four Opal list, uh, those kind of <laughs> Outcome lists will draw themselves out of a match more so than Jeskai or shops ever will. And so I think that factor also favors an increase in the performance and conversion rates for shops and Jeskai. And that's, of course, just assuming that the structure remains as is advertised. Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting point, too. That we, we have no reason to believe they will change something, but there is definitely a case to be made for them to change something based on attendance. We'll see. Yeah. Well, we will both be there. Kevin and yep. I will be battling and having a great time. We can't wait to play Star City Games Power 9 event again. Yeah. Um, and if you want to read a history of the um, the series, I've written an article for Eternal Central that was published last December that has all 27 Power 9 Challenge data sets, including top eights and in most cases metagame breakdowns on Eternal Central. And Star City Games themselves is going to be launching uh, a series coming up here starting at the end of May. Uh, 
hint, hint, I may be contributing a piece. Nice. So look, look forward to those articles and primers as well. Yeah, glad you mentioned that. This is going to be a, a trip down memory lane for us. <laughs> and I'm hoping that it would be cool if a couple of really old school, uh, you know, Beyond Dominia people showed up out of the woodwork from, <laughs> from the Ozarks. <laughs> right. From the wilds of <laughs> Appalachia uh, and, and yep. beyond. Those Appalachian cool. players, they go back a ways. <laughs> All right, so our closing question for this episode then is what do you think, what deck or archetype will win SCG Con's Power 9 tournament in June? Thank you for listening to episode 79 of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at many insane plays or email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com. As always, and until next time, we wish you many insane plays. Ha, 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 ha.